we have Julia coming to share with us this morning, so I'm going to ask her to come. Uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about Julia as we get started. I met Julia through Bible study, mm -hmm. and uh, she was one of the young women that I didn't know when I first began stepped into my role here at the North Campus, and so it was many years ago at a Reformation study that we did that Abigail taught. And so I wanted to get to know her a little bit more. We went, went out for lunch, and I learned some things. You know, and you're going to see her passion, her love for Jesus shine through. And that is born not out of just an easy life, but Julia has walked through many different kinds of suffering, and that has just drawn her closer to the Lord and to trust him more. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll hear that heart as she speaks this morning. And um, I think one of the things that has really blessed me is that she has passed that passion for Jesus and her love for sharing the gospel onto her boys. And so they go out in their neighborhood and they'll go across the street to neighbors and they will, do you know about Jesus? And they'll just begin sharing. And so I just, I love that about Julia and I, I know that you will love her if you get to know her. She has three little boys, JJ, Caleb, and Eli, and they are five, three, and nine months. And so as you hear Julia teach, just know that I mean, she has squeezed in and sacrificed time to prepare while caring for these little ones. And so it just is all the more precious to me that she is opening John 17 to us. And at this time in the life of our church, it's just, I just think it's beautiful, God's timing in this. So let me pray for Julia and then let her just teach. So, oh, Father, I am so grateful to you for Julia, for the many gifts that you have given to her to benefit us for this time, this morning at this place and at this time. And so, God, would you just pour out your Holy Spirit on Julia? Would you just enable her to focus and just have clarity of mind? And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be soft, that we would just hear your words for us this morning, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, Lord, that to hear the way that you have prayed for us will just bless us this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just pour out your grace on Julia now she teaches in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pam said, it's hard to believe that this is our last week. I've been attending on Tuesday evenings and have loved just the discussion times and being able to come together and study these prayers and gain a broader framework on how to pray through the scriptures and being able to continue to be reminded how God truly does hear us. So we started this summer studying the Lord's Prayer and Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. And we get to end the study hearing Jesus pray passionately to his Father and hearing what is some of his most important messages for his disciples and us as he ends his earthly ministry. Before we dive right in, I want us to ground our feet in where this prayer is coming in in John. So... We see in John's narrative that Jesus is ending his narrative with the disciples that we see in John 13, he washes the disciples' feet and enters into what is known as the farewell discourse. And so some of the common passages in that farewell discourse is Jesus saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus declaring that I am the true vine, abide in me. And Jesus promising to send the Holy Spirit and then telling the disciples that he is about to leave them. And we see in the end of John 16 that Jesus tells the disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. 
So Jesus finishes those conversations with his disciples and then turns with them still near to pray. And then we see right after this prayer that Jesus is about to face his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, as we see in John 18. And it's helpful to keep in mind that Jesus knows that he is about to face his betrayal and arrest as we go through this prayer, that that's on the forefront of his mind as he prays for the disciples and us. There are so many incredible truths within this prayer. As I studied, the more I dug, it was like Jenny referred to last week, it was a treasure chest. More and more riches appeared. And it was so sweet to unpack those. And as I talked with friends, and even many of you in this room about John 17, there were different elements of this prayer that stood out to each woman and ways that they were challenged and convicted and spurred on. And I wish we had time this morning to unpack all of those riches, but because of time, we don't. But as I studied this prayer and as I prayed and as I prayed for each one of you, I was continually brought back to Jesus' earnest prayer for unity. And I was brought to tears numerous times in studying over these last few weeks on God's sovereign timing of having us study this prayer at this time and being able to hear Jesus' heart for unity and what it looks like to live as a church in unity so that the love of the Father would be seen and that the mission of making known the gospel could continue. So my aim for us as we go through this prayer is being able to hear Jesus pray to the Father for the disciples and all the church to live in unity and on mission. We'll go through this prayer in three sections. First, we'll look at the Father. The Father would glorify Jesus in the completion of the divine mission in verses 1 through 5. Second, that the disciples would be protected, sanctified, and on mission after Jesus leaves the world in verses 6 through 19. And third, that the church would be united on mission and display the love of the Father in verses 20 through 26. And as we go through John 17, I'm going to read it in sections so you guys can follow along in your Bibles or find it on in your workbook on pages 64 and 65. So you can turn there now, and then I'll read the first section for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we hear in these opening verses that after Jesus finished talking with the disciples, he transitioned into praying. So with the disciples still near him, he prays to the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. What hour is Jesus referring to? Throughout the book of John, we hear Jesus repeatedly say over and over, my hour or time has not yet come. And now he's saying it has. His earthly ministry is nearly complete, and he knows that the crucifixion is before him. And in this hour, when the work is accomplished, Jesus asked to be glorified but not to be glorified just for himself, but ultimately to glorify the Father. So how does this work? At the cross, the wrath of God towards sin is satisfied. The curse in Genesis 3 comes true. Sin brings death. So God is glorified by executing justice by fully and completely pouring the wrath out on all sin upon Jesus at the cross. So Jesus, in his obedience to the point of death on the cross, bearing our sin, is glorified, having fulfilled the promise of God to redeem us. With this work accomplished, Jesus has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all given from the Father to the Son. And this plan 
for the Son to have authority over all for the purpose to give eternal life to those given to the Son from the Father was result in glorifying the Son and the Father. And this was all planned before the foundations of the world. So imagine with me, if we can get our brains trapped around this for a moment, that the triune God, before the world was set, had a plan in place to redeem fallen man from our sin. And this prayer, we are given a glimpse into the Son praying to the Father, for my work for the ones you gave me is nearly done, so glorify me. But not for his praise, but ultimately for the Father to be brought glory. And Jesus assumes a humble approach to remind the Father what the before time and earth existed plan was, and that Jesus had been faithful, as the rest of John shows us, perfectly faithful to complete the divine mission. In the opening verses, Jesus shows us how to pray to the Father in a way that doesn't make demands, but with humility recalls truth and requests God to act according to his word. Jesus only makes one request, to be glorified. But even this glory is not self-focused, but ultimately to give eternal life. And the rest of his words here are reflections on truth, remembering God's faithfulness to work in Jesus. As I studied this section, I kept thinking of how we started with the Lord's Prayer and the parallels within that prayer in this section as Jesus taught the disciples to pray and wanting God's will to be done and his glory to be made known. And we see from Jesus a heart posture here of humility, dependence on God, and desiring God's glory to be made known and to be clearly seen. And sisters, this is what we get to model in our prayers. We can come along and like Jesus is praying, for God's glory to be manifested. So some diagnostic questions to consider as you think about your heart posture in praying. Are your prayers big God prayers, asking for more of God's glory to be seen and known, more of the gospel to be treasured, and how you can join in his work and being accomplished? Or do you only ask God to grant you blessing, or remove hardship, and carry out your plans, which ultimately is wanting your glory? As we move into the next section, there's more to learn from Jesus as he prays for his disciples. We, like the disciples, get a glimpse of how to pray bigger prayers, learning from Jesus how he prays to the Father with this humble confidence that God does hear him. Jesus has two specific petitions that they would be protected and sanctified. We'll look at these in the next two sections. First, we'll go through the grounds for Jesus' prayer in verses 6 through 11a, and then second, the petitions Jesus prays for them in verses 11b through 19. You can follow along while I read verses 6 through 11a. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So the grounds for his prayer. In verse 6, Jesus says he has made God's name known to those whom you gave me out of the world. These ones are none other than the disciples that Jesus has called out of the world. Here we can distinguish three specific reasons why Jesus prays for them. First, the disciples were given from the Father, and they responded to Jesus' teaching in a way that others didn't. And lastly, Jesus is about to leave them. So first, we see that Jesus prays for the disciples because they were given to him. This phrase is used in verses 2, 6, 9, and 12 and always refers to the disciples. But what is significant about this? God the Father had called out of the world specific people to give to the Son that they might hear and respond to the true word of Jesus 
and come to believe and have eternal life in his accomplished work. And this theme isn't only found here in John 17, but is consistent throughout John's gospel, as we see in John 6, 10, and 15, the themes of the good shepherd and God drawing specific people to himself and keeping them. So now, Jesus turns specifically to pray for the ones that he has a unique relationship with, of love, obedience, faith, and joy, the disciples. But the emphasis is less on the specialness of these people and more on the contrast with the rest of the world. So second, we see Jesus prays for the disciples because they responded to Jesus' message. We see in verse 8 that the Father gave Jesus words and truths he was to teach, and Jesus taught what the Father wanted him to teach. The disciples accepted Jesus' words, obeyed his words, and believed that God sent him. So this knowing and believing further sets the disciples out from the world and gives ground to Jesus praying for the disciples. But not all responded, as we see in verse 12, and not all in the world respond with knowing faith. The last reason we see why Jesus prays for the disciples is because he knows he's about to leave them, as we see in verse 11a. Knowing that the disciples would be in the world without Jesus physically present and charged to carry out the divine mission, which is the Great Commission, he prays for the spiritual battle they will enter into. And he has two specific petitions, for protection and sanctification, as we'll look at now in verses 11b through 19. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We'll go through the section focusing on the petitions in two parts. First, we'll look at Jesus' prayer for protection in verses 11b through 15. And second, Jesus prays how Jesus prays for them to be sanctified in verses 16 through 19. Because Jesus knows he's leaving them, as we see in verses 11, 13, and 18, Jesus petitions the Father to keep the disciples, to preserve them in the knowing faith they received from Jesus. So Jesus entrusts his disciples to the Father after receiving them from the Father to keep them as he's going away. And we know from John 14, verses 15 and 17, and John 16, verse 7, that the Father and Son will send the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples. So Jesus has in view here that this keeping serves the purpose to be one, to be united together just as the Father and Son are one, to have a unity that is marked by self-giving love and reflects the very character of God and the pursuit of the shared mission. In verse 12, we see the dynamic of the contrast on display, even with those closest to Jesus. There are some given from the Father that receive and believe in Jesus, and there are some that are not of the Father, but are of the world that will reject Jesus. But this doesn't mean that God is unable to save them, or that Jesus' ministry wasn't fully effective, but that scripture will be fulfilled and God glorified. The word received and believed by the disciples makes them markedly different than the world. The disciples no longer agree with the world in their thoughts, behaviors, and desires, so much so that the world hates them, just as it hated Jesus. And in light of this persecution, difficulty, and affliction while they are in the world, Jesus prays to the Father to not take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Physical removal from this world might save us from hardship, 
but it would also defeat the purpose and method of the divine mission, to bear witness to his saving grace, to demonstrate his all-sufficiency as we rely completely on him in the spiritual battle, and to declare the good news to the lost world. Jesus, knowing what the disciples would face in his petition to the Father on their behalf, provides comfort and confidence as we currently are in the spiritual battle. As we are living in the world, but called to live differently, and as we do, we will experience persecution, difficulty, and affliction. I've been recently having conversation with women at church on just navigating the challenges around us in our world and within our church, and being encouraged by our recent fighter verses in Ephesians 6, 10-18, and seeing how we are in the spiritual battle taking place, and how do we pray protection over ourselves and our brothers and sisters. And I couldn't help but make the connection here with Jesus' prayer for protection with Paul's description of our spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6.12, which reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's easy to look at the disunity within the church or the disunity at the world and see our differences as the major battle. But here, Jesus points to the realities of the knowing and believing in him and staying in the world to carry out the divine mission is a spiritual battle. And as we hear this, would God awaken us to see the spiritual battle that we're facing and would we have a similar language to pray as Jesus prayed, to be united, to be kept from the evil one, and to be strengthened to remain where he has us to join in his kingdom work. Next, we hear Jesus pray for the Father to sanctify the disciples in truth, and the truth of his word. To sanctify means to make holy and to set apart from the world in order to carry out the divine mission. As the disciples continue to be set apart by the world, Jesus commissions them into the world to make the gospel known. This sanctified in truth is a call to believe in God's truth, love God's truth, and do God's truth in a world of ignorance, unbelief, and rebellion, and to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, as we see in Romans 6, 11 through 12. Practically, this is to obey the scriptures, live with sacrificial love, and witness to and teach the truth of the gospel and offer our whole lives in worship to God. But this sanctification we are called to is not a legalistic doing, but is rooted in the reality of being in Christ. For their sake, as we see in verse 19, is the means that the Spirit of God cleanses us with the holiness of Christ and makes us partakers of his holiness. This means all our striving after holiness, even in truth, should never be from our own strength but in Christ, not for our own sake, but for Christ. It's only made possible because of his obedience on the cross. As we see in Hebrews 10, 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We gain power for holiness as we rely on the Father hearing and answering Jesus's prayer here. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And praise God for hearing Jesus' prayer of protecting the disciples and setting them apart to carry out the divine mission and spreading the good news. Lastly, we move into Jesus praying for those who will believe in him from the witness of the disciples, which means you, if you believe in Jesus. So as the disciples go out and accomplish the divine mission, more and more disciples are made. And we'll look at this section in two parts. First, how Jesus prays for those who believe through the witness of the disciples in verses 20 through 23. And second, how Jesus prays that all given to him may be with him and see his glory in verses 24 through 26. You can follow along while I read verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So what is Jesus' prayer for the church? Unity. We see this refrain in verses 21, 22, and 23, that they may all be one. And this request for unity echoes what Jesus prayed for the disciples with him in verse 11, that the unity is based on the knowing, believing, being sanctified in the word of truth, and is similar to the oneness Jesus enjoys with his Father, to be one in purpose, love, and action. And this unity is different than uniformity, where everyone just becomes the same. And this unity is not accomplished by human striving or just ignoring differences or finding the bare minimum of commonality, whether that's your theology or your preference, or just gravitating to those already similar to you. But unity in the church is acknowledging and is celebrating the diversity of each person being united in the gospel, being united in Christ. And the goal of this unity of all believers, as stated here in Jesus' prayer, is that the world would know the Father sent Jesus, which then brings God glory. Throughout the Gospel of John, there has been a sharp distinction between those of the Father and those of the world, as we discussed earlier. And here we see the connection between believers and the divine mission continuing through declaring the word received from Jesus, that those in the world would come to believe the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus anticipates and expects and therefore prays that the unworldly unity of believers would be so strikingly different to unbelievers that they can't help but be convinced of the power of the gospel. But as you know, sisters, this by no means is easy or simple or just a gift bestowed to believers or the church. This is the hard work of being sanctified, pressing into our union with Christ and pressing into peace and unity with one another. Jesus prays in verse 23 that the world would know the Father loved them through our unity. Our interactions and our relationships with one another are to be distinctly marked by love. One of the commentators that I read unpacked this verse in a beautiful way, and I want to read it in full for us. What an unexpected grace from God that he would love us just as he loved Jesus. Jesus deserves God's perfect love. By virtue of our union with Christ, by faith through the Spirit, the Father loves us as he loves Jesus. Those who experience such love cannot but be transformed by it, and those who experience such transformation will be noticed by the world. The world, in turn, will be convinced that God sent Jesus because of the transforming love of God they observe creating unity among the people of God. In this past year, there has been a variety of issues that have had the potential to divide believers at large, and church in particular. There's been a pandemic, presidential election, topics of masks, vaccinations, ethnic partiality, and you may have personally felt divisions, challenges, or know others within churches that have experienced the divisions from any one of these issues. It's easier to be united and on mission together when things are going well, and it's much harder when we don't agree with one another. So what does this mean for us? I read an article where Francis Schaeffer addressed this so well. It is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going nice and we are all standing around in a nice little circle, there isn't much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there's a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. So sisters, what does it look like to live in unity? for the purpose of the world to know the Father's love and sending of Jesus. It would be easy just to ask God to quickly remove us from all of this, 
or just band together with those most similar to us or just try to ignore and dismiss. But the truest sense of unity comes when different perspectives are united in the gospel and the love we have for those most similar to us and the love that we have for those most different than us looks the same to those watching. And as we look more like Jesus, whom the fathers love, we join in this wondrous mystery of being united in Christ, looking like Christ, and receiving the Father's love. This sanctifying process is one of the methods God will use to send us into the world on divine mission in order to save the lost and dying. So as we turn to look at these last few verses together, we get to see Jesus pray for us to be with him and see his glory. So you can follow along while I read verses 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The end goal of this prayer is to be with Jesus, beholding his glory. And Jesus promised in John 14, verses 1 through 3, to go and prepare a place for his disciples. And now he declares his desire to the Father for believers to be with him where he is to enjoy forever the glory of the Son. And sometimes it's hard to grasp this glory and beholding Jesus for all eternity. But it truly is something beyond what we can even wrap our minds around of beholding Jesus for all eternity. And yet, there's also here Jesus gives us the future vision of beholding him And we also have, in the end of this prayer, a beautiful and tangible reminder to cling to while we are on this dangerous divine mission of experiencing the love of the Father, as we see in verse 26. And this love, which is the same essence of the love the Father has for the Son, is what we experience when we know and believe that Jesus was sent to die for our sins and through our union with him. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us now. And as Jesus prays for us to be kept, protected, and sanctified, the Father will keep us to the end. There is nothing better, nothing sweeter, nothing more real than this reality we have in Jesus. But as you think about the different challenges you are facing, your own fears or trepidations, whether personally, within the church, or our world, we can find comfort and confidence knowing that we are not alone to face these things. We hear in Hebrews 4, 14-16, that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as you pray, know Jesus is currently interceding on your behalf. As Jesus prayed for all believers in that moment at that time, he is continually praying on our behalf as we see in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, and how comforting and empowering it is to know that God hears our prayers, and we have Jesus interceding for us, and the Spirit also makes intercessions, as we see in Romans 8, verse 26 through 27 and 34. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So if you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he is praying for you. And what a comfort it is as we continue to go out in whatever we are facing, 
to know that we have Jesus interceding on our behalf, that we know God is at work to continue to show us his steadfast love, to strengthen us, to unite us together as we join in the divine mission here in this world. Let's pray. Jesus, we do just praise you for the ways you have worked and the ways that you're continuing to work. We thank you so much for the ways that you, Father, are keeping us, are sanctifying us by your word. Continue to allow your word to transform us into the likeness of Christ in order to make the gospel known to the world around us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are at work and each of us continue to give us grace and help as we face the challenges around us. Give us wisdom and help in living in unity with one another so that the world may know that, Jesus, you are our living hope, that we would continue to step forward on mission to make the gospel known. And we thank you for these truths that we can cling to and the hope that we have in you, Jesus. I thank you for my sisters and how you are at work in each one of them. As they go into their discussion times, would you continue to encourage their hearts and minds in the ways that you are at work? We thank you for your faithfulness and that we can look to you and trust you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.